0: Welcome to another podcast conducted by me, Dan Cooper, the CEO and founder of Rock Investments, which is the Return on Character podcast, where we get to interview people that think that character matters and have awesome stories that oftentimes inspire us and make us better. Today, I'm I'm thrilled and honored to have Adam Henson, the CEO of Genial, with us, co-founder of this company uh, that I know nothing about, and I know I know nothing about the category because I know it's in, in genetics. That's part of the reason why I'm most excited to have you on the show today because it's an it's a area in the world that we haven't gone yet on uh, Return on Character podcast. And to learn about it from uh, you is a is a gift, but also to kind of maybe have a discussion about it from a standpoint of character and how that might apply in your field would be great. But welcome, uh, Adam. Thank you for being with us.
1: Yeah, Dan. Thanks for having us. It's a it's a
0: pleasure. It's nice to have you, um, Adam. I, I like to start off with with context generally. In context for you, our, our my guest, tell me about. Uh, where you grew up before the show. you mentioned you've kind of lived in a lot of really different places. Uh, tell me how you got to Houston, where you're sitting today. Yeah, yeah I love it. I've uh,
1: bounced around the United States a lot. Um, from Midwest originally, I spent a long time in New, ha- New Hampshire. Uh, my undergrad was at a Brigham Young University in Utah. I've spent time abroad as well. I uh, spent a few years in Calgary, Canada, and we're a, we're a global family as well. My wife is from Taiwan, so I spent a lot of time over there. I speak Mandarin. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, coming up on seven years in Houston now. Hard to believe. Time flies. Um, I initially came here for uh, a PhD program in genetics. Uh, Houston is actually home to the world's largest medical center, and the uh, genetics department at Baylor College of Medicine is the largest NIH funded genetics, uh, you know, medical genetic department in the country. So I was really fortunate, you know, they decided to give me an offer for their PhD program, straight out of undergrad. So came here in 2016 for that and finished that up a few years ago.
0: I got to ask the question, did you speak Mandarin before you met your wife or did, did you meet your wife because you spoke Mandarin? How did that happen? And how, I mean, you know, Mandarin is one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. It's pretty incredible that you know how to speak it.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a journey learning it. I um, I, I took one semester of a Chinese 101 class, my second semester uh, in college. And around that same time, I was uh, filling out the paperwork to apply to be a, a volunteer service missionary for two years. And. Um, as part of that assignment, I I was asked to actually be a Mandarin speaking missionary in Calgary, Canada, and so, so that was a challenge. You know, as I'm, uh, I was lucky that I had at least you know one one semester of a foundation. I didn't even know how to say hi and you know ni hao and, and Mandarin before that. Yeah, um, but yeah, that was uh, that was where I got my my foundation in Chinese, and um, I actually I did meet my wife uh, there. Uh, didn't know each other well, but just kind of date in touch over the years. And, and so, yeah, I, ar- I already knew how to speak Mandarin when I first met her, but, um, obviously being married to, uh, to her, she's a uh, continued to teach me a lot over the years and, um, she's great. She's my better half. So
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, let's talk about a forced language lesson for lice, right? I yep. mean, you, you, you really yep. signed up for it. That's amazing. And then you, you kind of casually mentioned that you, you, you jumped into your undergrad degree or, or your PhD program right out of your undergrad. What made you qualified, you think, and what, what, what got you that, uh, that opportunity to start your PhD program?
1: Yeah. Um, it was a, it's a bit of a journey for me. I'd, I'd say it started really during my, uh, missionary service. It was a pretty formative years for me and, and. I was just taking a step back and reflecting on life. And I knew at that point in my life that I wanted to focus my career on innovation and entrepreneurship. So I at least have that as a foundation and uh, taking a, a step back to that actually came from growing up in a, a home where my, uh, uh, my, my mother is a healthcare, she was a nurse and my father was really the stereotypical inventor personality type. He would develop engineering technology in the computer engineering world, and uh, he, he was able to get some patents for his technology too, and have some small uh, licensing deals. But you know, never really materialized, and you know, never really became a reality in terms of the the technology hitting the market and having a positive impact on the world. And so, so I had that seed of, I could say, an obsession, or um, but really a strong desire to figure out what does it take to. to actually make innovative technology reality so uh, i i wanted to focus that on a specific industry that wanted to have more focus and i realized what motivates me the most is to relieve human suffering and to to try to do something to um, you know it's cliche as it sounds but really to to help people to have an actual impact on individuals and and with a, a bit of the Kind of healthcare angle, I um, guess, implanted from from my mom at a young age, being a nurse. I looked towards healthcare and and was learning about that at school, and I saw this new field of genetics really just opening up precision medicine, genetics. There's an opportunity to um, use medicine and innovative technology to actually have an impact on individuals. And so, yeah, that became my uh, career mission statement, which I have. um consistently stuck to over the last decade now uh, to relieve human suffering through precision medicine. And w- with the entrepreneurship angle, that really is the path that led me to realize, you know, okay, if I want to have an impact in this space, I need to learn more. This is complicated stuff. And, and I started applying to PhD programs. I also, I was able to connect with some mentors and advisors that, and. Um, really were generous with their time and, and helped kind of influence my my path there and so i started this phd program in houston with the intent of um, pursuing entrepreneurship afterwards and uh in terms of you know why they let me in I, i'm not sure what they <laughs> what they saw in me at that time I, I had pretty minimal you know research experience but um but uh the the training program at byu was, was pretty solid in terms of fundamentals and data analysis and genetics. So, um, uh, I, 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 guess that helped my, helped me plead my case. So.
0: so you, you enter the, your graduate program at the time of entering the graduate program, did you have you still had kind of eyes on starting something, being an entrepreneur, I'm assuming. And so as you were going through the entire process of graduating your PhD, you had that kind of orientation as you were looking at everything and that led to what? Led to where I'm at now, eventually,
1: you know, founding Genial, but, um, it, it led to a lot of, uh, friction as well too. you know, entrepreneurship is not a popular path in, in academia, in, in PhD programs, but I kind of had anticipated that going in. So
0: give me an example of the friction that happens around PhD entrepreneurs in the bio medical space
1: beyond just entrepreneurship too but really the friction about um uh, academia versus industry right. and uh kind of the traditional expected path for uh for scientists uh, for phd scientists is you know just like your mentors in the phd program you're going to go on that same path and uh, go into research and uh, not be motivated by you know financial motives but just just to have them um, uh, the desire to to learn and discover and be the primary motivation. So that's the perspective of academics and they see financial incentives getting involved. And um, just traditionally, that mindset has been that that's a, you know, A, it's just a different, unfamiliar world to the path that the people who train PhD students are familiar with. Um, but at the same time, there's also some little bit of probably distrust of, of motives historically you know kind of across the the table um, but you know i i was aware of that going in and uh, there was a rotation program which is great in, in the the program i was at we were able to rotate with three or four different uh, labs and uh, over the course of the year before picking one to join uh, for the, the remainder of our, our years and the phd and uh, i just kind of went into that with um just really being transparent. And not not hiding anything at all, and saying that these are my goals, these are my motives, uh, and you know i I would love to to come in and, and work hard, and but I also would, would expect um, support or alignment if I'm going to you know, work with you in in terms of um you know supporting this quote unquote non traditional uh, career path, which is actually becoming more and more popular now in the in the scientific world, but that's a different conversation. Sure.
0: So then you, you you graduated. What what next? How did you go right into entrepreneurialism? Did you start? Did you do anything in between? How did you formulate to to what you are doing today? How'd you get? How'd that come to be?
1: I I was continuing to uh, kind of sharpen the shot, sharpen the saw uh, during the the program as well. Um, T shaped skill sets. That's something that. Um, some mentors that I've had have, have really emphasized and that now at Genial we emphasize in uh, candidates that we look to hire too. So what I mean by that is uh you people talk about, you know, whether it's better to be a generalist or to be a specialist and developing that T-shaped skill set well the top of the T being wide represents being a generalist, having that generalist perspective, but also having a specific area, the the depth of the T you know, that you can come in with a you know, tangible, hard skill set and, and contribute. And so that was a focus. So for me, the PhD, I knew I was going to get that depth, but I wanted to make sure I was still able to to, to keep kind of increasing my breadth at the top of the T. And so I, I was fortunate to get connected with a uh, grassroots um innovation organization called Inventure in Houston. This is uh focused on the life science space and and they they basically were, were founded on the premise about 10 years ago that uh, Houston, as I mentioned, has the world's largest medical center, a ton of research talent. But at least at that point in time, there was virtually nothing in terms of um, biomedical industry, medical devices, pharma. Yeah, hardly just very, very minimal industry presence, not much industry, not much entrepreneurship. And uh, so the... The, the talent in Houston, huge talent pool, all focused on academia. Naturally, a lot of them are interested in entrepreneurship, starting companies, innovation, and um, kind of in the in the commercial space. So uh, the group was formed, and and by the time I got involved with them, they had a consulting operation up and running, and um, I uh, was uh, did an internal project with them on business development, and they asked me to to lead their uh, commercial consulting program for a year and um, so so that gave me experience in terms of managing teams and um, we had a uh, 40 consultants at the the head of the peak when i was with them and um, got recurrent contracts with fortune 500 companies as well and so kind of staying busy moonlighting on this um you know with this consulting program that that really helped to kind of round out my skill set a bit and how did I get to where I am now, right? So the, the other element that you need is that.
0: You're a consultant, you're getting business experience probably for the first time, right? right. Just yeah. contracts, yeah. understanding how the private sector works or big public companies work. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot about
1: hiring and firing, unfortunately, too, but, you know, just, just how, how to make those, those hard decisions, so.
0: Yeah, and so then when did these, tell me about the moment you had the idea, the big idea that motivated you to jump away from a secure, safe, comfortable life with a trajectory. And you could tell your wife everything was to be fine and you have health insurance and to, to literally jump off the boat into the big red or blue water. In terms of the actual
1: research I was doing, my task was I was the, I was the big data guy, the discovery um, person. Uh, We had anonymous, so, aggregated anonymized uh, genome, uh, genomic data. It's called exome sequencing data for about 20,000 patients with rare diseases. And at the time, this was uh, the largest of, uh, or one of the largest of those types of data sets in the world. And uh, so, my task was uh, looking at just this genomic information. How uh, can we discover new rare diseases from this? Uh, and using some new analysis techniques we we did find over 150 new candidate genetic disorders okay we called them candidates not quite a full discovery we didn't you know take it all the way across the finish line for each individual one and that's because we needed just a little bit more data for each of them a little bit more evidence uh, which was going to be dependent on re-engaging with those individuals whose data was used for the analysis, right? But again, our data was anonymized to protect their privacy, which is essential. You can't compromise on privacy for biomedical data, especially genetic data, which can even impact family members too, you know, beyond just just the individual. So it, it was great that we can make this discovery, but the whole motivation, right, of the human impact wasn't wasn't quite there yet wasn't satisfied, and so I I had a one of the two big moments was when um uh, four years later after our initial discovery of the first of those those diseases, I got a call from one of the um, medical doctors that we collaborated with. He said, "Hey, one of one of those families is actually coming through our our clinic and finally was able to receive a diagnosis." You know, we we found a and. I, uh, he invited me to go over and, and to meet with the families. And they were sharing that their son was 10 years old at the time. And he had a, a you know, intellectual disability and, and a lot of, um, you know, severe medical issues throughout his whole life. And they had spent his whole life searching for an answer, trying to find a, anyone who could understand what was going on trying to connect with the community as well and you know they were left in the dark and and in the genetic field we call this the the diagnostic odyssey 10-year journey for them when they finally received that answer and said this is a miracle to us we are so grateful for this they recognize you know they know it's still going to be a while until you know if ever in their lifetime that treatments will will be available, but at least just to have that diagnosis was a miracle for them. And here I was in the same room with them, thinking, you know, I, I knew about this four years earlier, but I had no way to share it with you. And that was, you know, I, I knew we could do, needed to do so much better for the patients. And so really it really was maybe four, four weeks of analysis turned into four years just because of the current approaches to protecting patient privacy cut them out of the loop like they really were cutting patients out of the loop in order to protect them. So,
0: so there's, there's the, there, there's the inkling of the problem that you hear, you kind to stumble onto realizing, because I, we have, we have a dear, dear, dear friend who, who has struggled with a disease or something that has not been able to be diagnosed for most of her life, then the psychological turmoil that that she's had to endure as a consequence of not understanding it, going up doctor after doctor after doctor, showing up, and uh, everyone seemingly to think they they know what's go- going on, and then eventually just not knowing. Um, I mean, it makes me appreciate the importance of just the the gift of just the diagnosis. Like she would, it would be so big to be able to explain why she's suffering, you know. And that's what you saw in this, in that family, it sounds like.
1: That's right. And, and so that was, um, at Genial, you know, we talk about how we're, we're building a private exchange for biomedical data. We connect patients and other data producers like healthcare systems, diagnostic labs. We connect patients and these other data producers with consumers of biomedical data, biopharma innovators, researchers. And we do all of this in a way that safeguards patient privacy. Number one, the really problem number two that's interrelated is preserving data ownership as well, be able to preserve those that the rights and the ownership over that data. And so that's really the second insight that we had as well is um during the PhD program, it's kind of this conundrum where we're nowhere near kind of satiating that demand for a larger sample size for analysis and biomedical data. Um, We need more data. We need larger data sets. So because of that kind of the simple solution that people first are gravitating toward is okay, let's aggregate all this data together. But what ends up happening is there's the patient privacy. There's also data ownership, corrections, you know, Groups are investing their their capital their their effort and their lives themselves and into this and if you just aggregate your data into a black hole or a vacuum that just sucks up everyone else's data you know being able to someone else now can see that data you you really have to trust them to to not misuse it and it's just a huge um, friction point basically where data is incredibly siloed right now because Yeah, we really, from the, for for patients, we need it to be aggregated, but, but also for the individual and for the data owner, that kind of goes against their interest too, so.
0: Tell me about your business. What is it that you actually uh, do in the marketplace? Uh, How did, how does your business function?
1: Yeah, so how are we, how are we solving these problems too, right? And there's this new a really exciting field in the world of computer science called the privacy-preserving computation, or privacy-preserving compute. And it's a it's an umbrella term, but uh, basically it's really brand new or just arriving in the last couple of years. And now we can have ways to analyze data without actually seeing the contents of the data. We can blind ourselves to the raw data and also blind ourselves to the results of that analysis too. So how do you, how do you make any sense? that out work? Of the, yeah. So, so how do you see the results, right? Um, the, what we're doing is we're establishing an exchange, a, a network where the consumers of data, they can come in and, and run an analysis or ask for something. And we at Genial have a, this aggregated database, but it's actually, it's encrypted and we can't see the contents like i mentioned we can't see the results but we run that analysis nonetheless and with with those private encrypted results now we have to go back to the data owners they're on our platform as well and they have transactional level control uh, whether to approve or decline and basically the release of, of those results on their data so that way we can enable that connectivity we can get the benefits of data aggregations but those data owners they still own their data they um, have transaction level control
0: so they can sell their data is it is it is it offered is it is the data bended on like amazon like ebay or app because of work
1: yeah yeah so so we're still building out the marketplace kind of the buyer side of it and we're we're starting first with with data producers but the model will be that uh, either as an individual or as maybe a, a healthcare system with a larger set of data you can either sell individual um, slices of data individual level data or you could rent your data to be used for like more of an aggregate analysis and um, mm-hmm. both of those both of those routes are, are possible um, and uh it also really this is consent you know is a huge uh, huge part of this as well too right and so this is the old way of doing things is patients consent say you know you sign up for 23 and Me, and about two-thirds of their customers will just mm-hmm. click a little yes i consent to let my data be used for research but after that you lose all visibility you lose all tramp you don't have any transactional level visibility let alone control let alone you proceed of um, you know compensation for when your data is used to so that's that's what we're trying to change and yeah we're starting just a date when did you found the company
0: when did you found it uh
1: 2020 is when we first um filed ip and then uh my co-founder is actually my brother which is which is fun um but uh we we were both working I, i was working another job for a year he was finishing up second year of his mba program then we came back uh it is summer 2021, so coming up on two years now, full time at Genial.
0: So you're you're creating essentially a, an exchange, a market, kind of an exchange for for data, personal data, and in this case, it's starting with medical data. I I I can't help but think that that the world needs this beyond that, in the sense that you know Google has all my data. Um, who, you know, all the big tech sh- has my data, uh, my, fil- my friend, Phil Chang, uh, yeah. yeah. in Taiwan says that that's, that's currency. That is, it. those are, de- that's, that's money that, uh, people should be able to sell their data. Um, you know, or uh, beyond this, have you ever thought of, I mean, I know you got to start somewhere medical, medical, uh, data is an obvious one. Um, have you ever thought about taking this beyond just that and, and, and trying to reclaim and giving people the ability to reclaim the information about themselves and how public it is?
1: We just, we think about it a lot. And, and that's, um, you know, very well could be on our roadmap in the future. Um, but, you know, there's, when there's such a big opportunity and so many exciting possibilities about the future, especially at our stage now, it's important just to and Stay remain focused. grounded on, yeah. our, on our initial focus and to, and to not get distracted. And, and, um, you know, when you're choosing between two good or multiple options that are all good, and it's not one that's inherently better than the other. <clears throat> For me, it goes back to that personal mission statement and kind it of keeps, keeps me and, and keeps Genial, our company grounded as well. That's really become the focus of Genial as well. to help relieve human suffering um, by accelerating precision medicine through private uh, exchange of biomedical data. Um, but, you know, as, as we grow, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be opportunities to, to look at applying, uh, you know, data exchange across industries too, which will be fun to see that.
0: But you probably get more resistance there than, than you would maybe. Because uh, both parties are motivated in your scenario the other scenario. One's warned it would want to shut you down. Have you ever had any thoughts as it relates to quantum computing and the rise of quantum computing and its ability to... Or compromise encryption and all the things and security that, that a lot of this uh, space would rely on. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm, I'm always curious uh, that over uh, for those that are really, I mean, their business is focused on, on protecting confidentiality.
1: Yeah, we're, we're thinking, how can we build this to be as future proof as possible? And to your point, uh, quantum computing, you know, does pose a very real threat of being able to um, uh, to crack uh, a lot of the most commonly used encryption algorithms out there right now. Uh, thankfully, and this new umbrella of privacy preserving compute, new encryption algorithms that are being developed through this. Um they, you know they, they do have their achilles heel of being less efficient and they need optimization still that and that's why they're not just instantly you know everywhere and ubiquitous but you know a lot of these new algorithms are considered to be quantum safe and are not expected to to be uh, able to be cracked by quantum computing so you know now that deep cryptography and quantum of computing disclaimer you know that's outside of my my technical wheelhouse but um that's but that's what we're um, our perspective and our understanding about that. So. Well,
0: you know, I always like to ask my guests um, what their most defining character moment was and how it affects them today. Do you, does anything come to mind for you, Adam, as as either personally or professionally that really kind of shaped who you are as a person today, how you are played a role in industry and and as a CEO.
1: I do think of character as, as being the accumulation over time of, of consistent choices and deliberate decisions, making those hard decisions over time, I, I think. So for me, I, I think there's there's definitely been, you know, uh, a, a ton of of moments and in, in, in trials and in things that I've seen. Um, but I, I do think one one moment comes to mind and i think going back to that personal mission statement um i i remember it was a, a mentor of mine uh, at BYU connected me with a a leader in the, the field of alzheimer's disease research and i um he had just founded a company at that time and i heard his story about his personal Motivation um, behind Alzheimer's—it was affecting his family, and and remember he used those exact words of relieving human suffering is really what motivated him in that, and you know that just really struck a chord with me. It was, it was a thought that I, I had a you know visceral emotional reaction the moment that I remembered, and as I ruminated on it and that evolved, I really came to adopt that as my personal mission statement just to add the the focus on genetics and, um, you know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't a challenge, but that was, um, I think that was a huge character defining moment for me because it helped me establish my North star right, personal mission statement, which leaning on that is what helps me know what decisions to make when I am faced with those challenging periods. You know, if you don't have your core principle or focus and, how can you decide really what to do in those challenging moments
0: i love that adam you are you've been such a wonderful guest you're so thoughtful uh and, and i am so grateful to know you um i'm really grateful that you're in, that you're in this space uh a thoughtful person like yourself in a space that could be um well dangerous for humanity if it got in the wrong hands of folks so keep up what you're doing um, and I, uh, is there anything that, uh, would be helpful for you, uh, in your business to communicate to an audience, um, anything we can do to help you other than to cheer you on?
1: And so on our website, genial.com, that's G-E-N-E-I-A-L.com. You can head over there. We have a, a, a form where you can sign up for our newsletter. That uh, there's also another tab where you can just reach out to us and, and ask a question. And mm-hmm. if this is interesting to you, uh, if anything that I've said, rare diseases are actually a very common problem. It's estimated seven uh, percent of the world has a rare disease, eighty percent of which are genetic. So, you know, it's a big problem. It affects it affects a lot of people. If this is relevant to you, we'd love to hear from you. And. Mm-hmm. So uh, feel free to reach out uh, via our website or, or sign up for our newsletter if you uh, want to follow us on our journey.
0: So just to, to go on a tangent here a little bit, so said said friends has this product problem. Is there any way they come to you and you play a role, or do those needs to be in a, a, a doctor in the in, um in between? How does that work? Yeah, you know this is uh, Dan.
1: This is such a. Really complicated problems that we're we're trying to tackle, and um, we need to be lean and build out the functionality of the platform kind of one step at a time. So, having said that, uh, eventually we absolutely will be at the point where there is a um, uh, where people who are undiagnosed um, can uh, sign up uh, through our app, share information kept which is kept private. Um, but then that that could be used to facilitate potential matchmaking, you know, putting them and clustering them with other patients that maybe researchers on the other end want to say, oh yeah, I am, I'm actually interested in in looking into these types of things. So, um, so we'll get there. Uh, but at least for now, for the, for the initial steps today, um, we're we're working with um, kind of a B 2 B to C model where there's established advocacy groups for people that do have a diagnosis. Um, but even at least just from uh being patient centric is is so critical. A lot of companies out there in the space say they're patient centric, but it's really a name only. You know, we we literally are building this around the needs of individuals and patients. So, just from a discovery, uh, understanding and um, uh, perspective, you know, kind of having empathy, we love to hear individual stories as well. So, if, if you'd like to reach out and, and share your journey with us.
0: Okay. That's amazing. And then finally, you know, I'm only interested in economics. How much do you want? How much will you pay for my data? I mean, I'm willing to give it to you, but you gotta, you know, you gotta, what do I get? A hundred bucks a month? Yeah. Yeah. We do. I mean, that's another way to motivate people to participate, right? You know, like say, Hey, give us, give us your data and, and, uh, we'll pay you five bucks a month. You can buy a latte, you know, something like that. (laughs) <laughs> well, we
1: can, we could, who are, since we're trying to set up brokerage, right? Eventually, a private brokerage. The, the pricing thing is going to be interesting to figure out. You know, there's a lot of these direct exchanges of data happening right now, and we've seen a, a range of prices that basically could be anywhere from. Uh, well, it's caveat too. So, so what's the value of a healthy, quote unquote, healthy person's DNA and medical? record. A single, at the individual level, it's actually very, very minimal. But on the other uh, end of things, the cost of recruiting an individual to a clinical trial, especially the more rare um, the, the the disorder is, be looking at ballpark $20,000, ten dollars to $20,000 to have someone signed up and recruited in a clinical trial.
0: So you're saying that this is actually a uh bizarre twist of fate that could eventually, the more sick you are, the more your data is worth, and you could actually generate more income, which would maybe help provide you a way out of your sickness eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so cool, dude. I mean, this is so awesome. I I mean, I I know you're just in the beginning stages of things uh, and getting going, uh, but... I love it, man. You've planted a lot of possibilities in my brain as far as uh, I hope we can stay in touch, and uh, I'm so happy you're, I'm so happy you're not in academia, Adam. Stay in the industry and be good, okay?
1: All right, all right, thanks, thanks, Dan. I love what you're doing too. so all thanks right. for having me.